Thank you for joining us on Don't Filter Feelings. I'm Lauren Layfield, and on this podcast, we have conversations about the issues that matter with people who have stories to share. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This episode is about suicide. I'm on the set of Hollyoaks with Brian Kirkwood and Angela Samata, who have both experienced what happens when someone takes their life. So you may find some of this podcast upsetting. Brian and Angela, welcome to Don't Filter Feelings. Um, Brian, first of all, I'm going to be on my best behaviour because you're the boss <laughs> around here, aren't you? Uh, what's it like being on the set of the show that you exec produce? It's very strange being here on camera. It feels very, very weird. Do you ever get down to the set very often? Because I imagine you're doing really like boss, boss man things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do try and make it down as often as we can, but not as often as we'd like. Yeah, I bet. You've been so busy. There's been so many amazing storylines on Hollyoaks over the past year and obviously we're here to talk about one that's really important um before i get into it though the first question we always ask our guests is how are you feeling uh slightly nervous uh about the podcast very excited to be invited to be part of it it's a subject really close to my heart but um as with anything where you're kind of digging deep in front of an audience slightly nervous it is a little bit isn't it angela how are you feeling definitely share that I mean it is nerve-wracking isn't it it's kind of not quite knowing what to expect and yeah it's the end of the day and it's been a really busy week so far um so yeah really looking forward to doing this actually I think it's such an important topic it's uh great to be able to do this I was so happy to be covering it um you Brian have been so responsible for many of the mental health storylines on Hollyoaks why have they been important for you uh, to portray on screen uh, well, it goes back to my childhood. Um, I uh, grew up in a, a house that wasn't represented on on TV at all. Right. Uh, my mum took her own life when I was uh, just a month short of my eighth birthday. Oh, uh, my dad, who was gay, uh, which was almost unheard of, certainly uh, to my friends and family at the time. This is the uh, the early eighties. My dad brought my brother and I up single handedly for a number of years. Uh, but as a result of many, many kind of traumatic events in his own life, he eventually uh, eventually led to him losing his own fight to addiction mm. um, about uh, 15 years ago. So um, mental health dominated and defined my childhood, my whole life, in fact. Mm. Uh, and as I've said before, I, um, I think it wasn't necessarily that mental health killed my parents. I think it was the silence surrounding their, their mental health the fact that nobody spoke about it uh, nobody ever acknowledged it my mum my sort of disappeared my family were so shocked by the grief that her name was never mentioned again and I've recently spoken to my very very well-meaning aunties about it and they were just doing what they thought was best at the time did you have anything that re- resembled a kind of normality as as far as normal goes yeah absolutely yeah there was periods when she was at home and uh working in a Saturday job and my brother and I were god absolutely loved and adored and you know sent to school and there was absolutely nothing wrong with the picture um unless you knew about it and when she lost her life did did you have an understanding of of what that was and and what suicide meant no she disappeared we were told Mm. that she died we were never um never told any details around it and I kind of piece the jigsaw together myself in the years that followed and so how old were you when you kind of got a grasp of what actually happened uh 12 13 
So that's a little, quite a, a long mm. passage of time to, to not know, you know, and yeah. those are very formative years when you're learning a lot about the world and to, to not understand quite what had gone on must have been quite dramatic. But I mean, that's why I'm so obsessed about putting these stories out on the telly, because alongside that, this sounds like a Hollyoaks story, was my dad living the secret life of a gay man which was a similarly weighted secret in the household. Mm. So it brings me back to the job that we do here at Hollyoaks. And I think um, really simply, if we can help provoke a really uncomfortable conversation in people's living rooms, then I think that can only be a good thing. And I, I, I sort of feel that had you not been at the helm of these things these these storylines might not have made their way so early Hollyoaks has been, always been the front runner for storylines like this doing the things before the other soaps kind of got to them and I think that as much as we go through really dark things there has been obviously some good things that have come out of it ultimately yeah I hope so um, Andrew can we talk about your background as well can you tell us what sure. it is that you do right now sure so I work in the arts and I became involved in Hollyoaks a little while ago now wasn't it Brian when um, I was asked to um, have some input into this storyline uh, around Scott Scott suicide that, right? attempt right. about Scott's suicide attempt and have some input into that and to actually watch those episodes before they were broadcast just to sense check just to a fresh pair of eyes looking at looking at that episode and I think I was incredibly impressed by um, the amount of detail, the amount of research, the way it was written. Um, and, and that kind of really switched me on to these difficult storylines mm-hmm. being, being covered in that way. And why were you sort of best placed to be the person to, to do that? So um, about 15 years ago now, I got my dream job in the art world and it was a job that I'd always wanted and I got it. And unfortunately, it was the best of times and the worst of times because in the same month that I got the dream job uh, in the art world, I um, also unfortunately um, lost my partner to suicide. And he, you know, it was very, very unexpected. It, nobody saw it coming. And we had a three-year-old and a 13-year-old at the mm-hmm. time. So very, very quickly, I think when this happens to you, um, you realise that you're not the only person that this has ever happened to because people, once they realise how you've been bereaved and what happened, they start to tell you their story. You know, it can be as simple as uh, being in a supermarket and someone says, you know, I I read about you in the paper, you Mm. know, and and they say, you know, it happened to me. You know, I I lost my mum or I lost my dad or my brother or my sister or my friend. And so I became aware that this huge enormous traumatic event that had come into our lives um, was something that was shared by many other people and the big turning point for me I think was that um, I realized that in order to I had very similar to you Brian I had an amazing family around me I had an incredible support system I had good friends and but essentially I felt that I needed to speak to other people who had been bereaved in the same way as me because I didn't understand the landscape that I was trying to navigate and it's like a landscape that you're not prepared for that you never anticipated you don't anticipate it and I think that I had a three-year-old and a 13-year-old looking at me for answers and looking at me for the way that I was reacting to this type of bereavement and I think I was just trying to get it right Mm -hmm. you know I was trying to uh do what I thought was best and again that that um 
that situation, Brian, about do you tell children the truth? Mm. Do you tell them, are you protecting them if you don't tell them that some, mm. you know, that their parent has ended their life? I, I was very confused by that. My gut reaction told me to tell my children the truth. Also, you had quite the age gap between your <clears> children <throat> as well. So that must have yeah. been difficult yeah. because if they're both yeah. 14, say, yeah. it might make it yeah. maybe marginally a bit more simple. Yeah. But with someone and so, so So my three-year-old at that time didn't know what um, not coming back was. Mm. So it was a very basic conversation with, with him about the fact that their dad wasn't coming back. And so I sometimes had to have that conversation on a daily basis because he didn't really understand what the day after tomorrow was or what next Wednesday was or whatever so it was a different conversation to the conversation that I had to have with my 13 year old which was obviously a much more honest uh, yet still age appropriate conversation mm. but I thought that my children had just lost enough what they didn't need to lose was the trust in their remaining parent mm. and I felt that if I started to lie to them although it was it would have been easier for me at that point. I think what you said, Brian, absolutely. I think we want to protect our children and sometimes that means not telling them the truth, we think. But actually what I did was tell them the truth age appropriately, had some really, really difficult conversations where we all cried together uh, and we were all okay together. Um, but actually what that did was stood me in good stead for the rest of the, the growing up that they did because we were on a level playing field because I told them that I didn't understand and I told them that I didn't know why and that was the truth. Mm. Looking back, Brian, would you, would you have <clears throat> rather been told, do you think? Obviously you were a little bit younger when it happened, but... I think I would. Um, and I, again, but you've got to, I've got to respect the decisions made at the time. So there's no recriminations in what I'm saying here, but I do think it would have been better in the long run mm -hmm. for for my brother and I to have been told an age-appropriate version yeah. of the truth. Mm -hmm. Because not knowing, all I can say is that not knowing what happened to my mum, not knowing what was happening to my dad in the present uh, meant that there was um, there was secrecy, and then and then when there's secrecy, there's lies, and then when there's lies, there's kind of sort of an uncomfortable kind of yeah. atmosphere that yeah. you might not know, but you can sense. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I think there's that phrase intergenerational trauma, mm -hmm. which I've become aware of over the years, yeah. which is, you know, when when families or parents are hit by gigantic trauma like suicide mm -hmm. um it's very easy for that to trickle down through the generations mm -hmm. and affect the next generation and yeah. beyond so i think yeah. the way to stop that is by having really tough conversations and and speaking the whole truth what do you think the impact of suicide is i think the impact is um so far reaching I think we you know we used to say that for every suicide six people were impacted and then it went up to 10 and the most recent research coming out of America is that on average it's about 135 people um, are impacted for every suicide and that can be close family close friends the guy that, that you bought your paper from every morning the person who served you your lunch in school you know it can be uh 
everybody who ever came into contact with you um, can be impacted if, if, you, if you take your life. And so I think we used to focus on this very small group, but actually it, it's, it's much wider than that. And certainly when you have somebody in the public eye that ends their life, you know, I'm thinking about people like Robin Williams, mm. it can impact on millions of people. So first of all, the scale of the impact, we've now realised it's much, much bigger than we thought. But I think that the emotions that we associate with suicide, feelings of guilt, blame, shame, can really, really eat into a community, whether that's a family or a network of friends or a bunch of colleagues, because everybody thinks that they should have seen it, that Mm. everyone else should have seen it. You know, why didn't I pick up on that? Or why didn't you pick on that? Exactly. Does that happen? Do people think, well, you lived with them, how did you not know? Absolutely, and I think it's a a very dangerous game to play, but I think most people play it. Mm. Uh, Everybody's got an opinion why. Um, Everybody thinks that everybody leaves a note, and sometimes notes are left. In about 80% of cases, they're not. But even when a note is left, it can be have been written in anger it can have been written a long time ago it can be written that they blame one person but in their you know irrational minds at the time that behavior could have been completely misinterpreted you know so again I think that the impact for me that I witness can be that you see the very best of people and strangers want to help you and your family and friends but you can also see the very worst of people when they are blaming each other and when they are really tearing chunks out of each other because nobody knows the answers so in terms of talking about it obviously we seem to have come on leaps and bounds we've definitely seen i think in the last two three four years a lot more celebrities coming out and talking about it and pop stars talking about it and songs being written about it which is all amazing stuff but we're i think we're still we're still not quite there are we angela what do, what do you feel about it um i agree i think we have uh come a huge way i mean in in 15 years so i, I i've been because of my experience i've been <clears throat> working in and around suicide prevention and suicide awareness and bereavement for for the past 15 years al- alongside my my career in the arts and i think that yeah things have absolutely moved on and and there's lots of reasons and changes in society that have brought that about but i do also feel that we have got a a, a long way to go um we've just had some new um data released for people taking their lives and actually we were expecting rates to go up and we know why those rates have gone up and some of it is around things like when you go to a coroner's court um it used to be that the thing that we call the standard of proof how you can prove that somebody absolutely intended to end their lives that was very very high it was called the criminal standard of proof and now that has been lowered um, so we knew that we were going to see more um, more conclusions and verdicts of suicide and that's why it looks like the rates have gone up now so it, it's it's we were expecting that but I think while we're still looking at around 6,000 people a year ending their life and 75% of them being men we've still got work to do mm. the, the men thing seems to be um particularly sticky i think i know in, in amongst my my friends the girls are now quite cool about talking about stuff the boys are all really really struggling i'm sure they won't mind me saying but they've all kind of got different issues going on and trying to get them just to talk between themselves without me shoving them in each other's mm. direction is an impossibility and it's why why are boys and men so so 
difficult about chatting openly about it? Is it macho culture? Is it... I think that's got a part to play in it. I think it is, you know, I think it is about... um, And I feel... I'm a woman answering this, you know. It's oh, I will come to Brian But it kind of feels as if it's expectations that society puts on men. It's things like using phrases, which I absolutely hate, like man up. You know, it's it's all of those things that are cu- that have accumulated into something that we think a man should be like. And we think that we're bringing up men when actually we should be bringing up human beings, mm-hmm. you know. And I think we have a different measure of what success looks like for men we have a different measure for what health looks like for men we have a different measure for what you know um working hard looks like for men Mm. and i think while we've got these unrealistic expectations well no one can live up to them because you know they don't exist Mm. so again i i just think that um you know i i I don't know have you ever have you ever struggled with having those conversations, Brian? Obviously, you're being like really open with us now, but has it ever been a difficult topic for you? Uh, well, actually, I was just reflecting on on what we were saying there. In that, I mean, my husband uh, has a really close knit gang of male mates. He's really lucky. He's been in the same gang of of, of male friends since he was five, mm. and and i always grew up with girlfriends with a, in a gang of girls mm-hmm. um and we've been together for nearly 20 years but he thinks i'm a giant snowflake because <laughs> i want to talk about my feelings and <laughs> you know and link pinkies and form a caring circle the whole time and, and that's what him, girls do him and his time. mates just want to go down the pub and and kind of and talk about nonsense quite yeah. frankly <laughs> yeah. but um it's 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 horrible and it's it's a horrible truth that despite all the amazing work by the Samaritans and mm-hmm. by Mind mm-hmm. and the fact you can't walk six feet along a, a railway platform without seeing a brilliantly clever advert mm-hmm. for the Samaritans. Yeah. The fact is, it seems to me that, um, and I don't have the answer to this, mm-hmm. God knows, but I think that something isn't quite mm-hmm. there yet mm-hmm. with the communication about And it must male be communication. Health. That must be I don't I don't think it's an inherent gender problem. Mm. I think there's something in the way that groups of men maybe speak to each other. I think mm. are men more inclined to like you say, go down the pub and yeah. what do they what do they require? Is that the is that the million dollar question I have to tell you I've never had a a man sit in front of me that didn't want to talk about things (laughs) you know I think sometimes it's about creating the opportunity but also uh, you know it's not just you know we keep saying to men you need to talk you need to talk and that's fantastic and they do need to talk but then we need to go further we need to create the place to talk we need to create the way to talk we need to um, I have to say you know I've never had a, a situation where somebody's asked to see me and they've said nothing to me you so know, the issue is so. not talking really I don't know, want to um, rubbish any campaigns that are out there but is the issue maybe not talking it's about getting them yeah. to the place in, in the first place I think place. it's not either or I think it is talking and I think all of the campaigns that are encouraging everybody to talk more to talk about their feelings more to um, you know th- this podcast you know don't filter feelings absolutely you mm-hmm. can't get any better you know but I think we have to do better in creating the places to talk and again I think things like showing storylines on television 
creating those platforms for discussion are fundamental to that because sometimes it's easier to talk about a stranger or a fictitious character on Hollyoaks going through a challenging time than it is to you know it's like asking for a friend you know it's it's so it's someone come in and and reference something they've seen on the tv absolutely yeah I mean when we did the I think there's two things when we did the uh we, we made a film called Life After Suicide and I talked about my lived experience on, on on the BBC and I think the outpouring after that of people just feeling relieved that they could see somebody who was just an ordinary person who was going through what they went to went, went through um, the impact of that and allowing people to just say yeah this happened to me and for them to not feel alone w- was just incredible mm. incredible and in terms of your partner just going back to that he you had no idea no. then. He, he never let on anything. No. I think it's a real case of, um, and you'll probably back, back me up on this, Brian, but I think it's a real case for me of I wish I knew then what I know now mm. because I've had 15 years of you know, having the great privilege of speaking to people who feel suicidal and for them telling me how it feels to feel suicidal and how it, f- you know, the, the, the place that they're, they're at. And I wish that I'd have known then what I know now I think that final conversation that I had with 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 Mark would have been very different it wouldn't have been I'm on my way home I'll speak to you when I get there it would have been okay um we need to talk about this you know we we, tell me about how you're feeling Uh, because I would have known that the the things that were going on in his life could add up to to him not feeling great so that's why we need to do things like this and talk openly and honestly. And I, and I think that being able to do that, hopefully if someone else is listening to this and they're worried about somebody in their life, it will give them an idea of where they can turn to, to for help or how they can have a conversation or, you know, the simple fact that if you ask somebody if they're feeling suicidal, that conversation is more likely to save their life than it is to end their life. Mm-hmm. You know, asking somebody directly. Um, and is it that directness? Is that what we need? I know a lot of talk has been had about not keeping it open, but being really clear and saying like, yeah. how are you? Is everything okay? And and really like getting to the, the nub of it. I think if you ask somebody if they're having dark thoughts, well, your dark thoughts and my dark thoughts are probably really different. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> I think if you say to someone, you're not going to do anything silly, are you? Well, it might, it's not silly. For them, it's a life-changing decision. If you ask somebody if they're feeling suicidal, that is, we all know what we're talking about. So to my mind, I would be encouraging people to ask people directly, but know what to do if the answer's yes. Um, I what think if you that, ask the question though, and mm. you get the response back, which happens so many times, which is, yeah, I'm fine. Ask it again. Ask it again. Ask it as many times as it takes until you are convinced that the answer is authentic and, and true. Just keep asking it again. And do you mean that even if it takes months yes it takes years yes because often that'll be the response i get back from so many friends is they're they're fine they're always fine if you're asking the question they know that you care about them and if you're asking the question a lot they know you care about them a lot Mm -hmm. i think also to do things like ring papyrus helpline they will advise you if you're worried about a friend ring get some advice you know i think that um your stomach is an amazing thing. It will tell you if something is wrong. Mm-hmm. It will tell you if you are, if you're worried about a friend, you can feel it in your stomach if something isn't right. I think we spend quite a lot of time not listening to our, our stomachs. Um, you can feel it. And I think you will never regret, regret asking the questions. Sometimes you regret 
not asking the questions. So I would I would always say that we, we, clinically, sometimes we worry that if we have people who are very, very low, very low in mood, and all of a sudden they are very elated, mm-hmm. we worry that sometimes it can be because they have made a decision that um, they are really seriously considering ending their lives. Yeah. But sometimes it can be that actually if somebody's mood increases very slowly and, and, and they are starting feeling better and they're talking to you more and they, be, they are, you know, looking at their protective factors more and they're engaging more, it can be actually that they've realised what was what was the issue and they've addressed it. Mm. So, but you will only know that if you ask them questions and if you open those doors of communication. Can we talk about the terminology around um, yeah. suicide? Obviously, for a long time, it's been committed suicide. Mm. How do you mm. feel about that, Brian? How do you feel about that wording? It's alongside committing a, a crime, isn't it? Committing yeah. a sin. Yeah. Um, and so if we separate the language from mm. something criminal, then Absolutely. I think that's a good and thing. That, that's where it came from. Right? That's, that's where it that's came, where from. It came yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. It's, like where we, it's, it's where we get coroner from. The word coroner was because after you, if you attempted to take your life or if you took your life, they, 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 the, 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 the um, coroner came and took all of your wealth away. Mm. And and so that's where we, the crowner, that's where we get it from. And again, for me, um, the language around suicide is really, really important because I think sometimes we've got to be straight. We've got to call suicide, suicide. If somebody feels suicidal, we have to say the word. So we all know what we're talking about. But I think when I'm working with families bereaved by suicide, they really appreciate it when you don't say committed suicide or mm. when you try not to say it, because it means that we're really valuing their experience. What do you think needs to happen going forward obviously we've made loads of progress Mm -hmm. we're still not there so what happens next I think if it was me uh, (laughs) I would be teaching uh, all of our young people how to recognize their own risk factors what is it that is their risky behavior what is it that they know it could be drinking it could be drugs it could be getting into toxic uh, friendships what are your risk factors what what is making you not feel great but I would also ask them to identify their protective factors and that can be things like going for a run things that make you feel good it can be your dog your cat it can be um, your family it can be going to an art gallery but what I would do is I would teach young people um, from a really early age how to recognize their protective factors what keeps them safe what what makes them feel loved what's what makes them feel good and I would ask them to start recognizing what risk factors are what's the risky behavior what's not making you feel good um if you know and how to change those risk factors and move away from them and increase your protective factors because I think we have to realize that we have it within ourselves to to do that and actually only us know what our risk and protective factors are so I think to allow young children to really start thinking about that from a really early age and our risk and protective factors change throughout our life but I think if we start thinking about ourselves what protects us what makes us feel risky I think knowing yourself and being able to articulate that is 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 really important Mm. because when we have too much of one and not enough of the other we can change that balance we can do it ourselves so um I think you, you being able to do that would mm. be would be an amazing thing. From a, from a media point of view, then, Brian, what do you think you want to see more of, or make more of? Uh, I don't know. I think the biggest challenge that I'm becoming aware of is is how you get this message not just across, but under the skin of the quiet man who has never been able to talk. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, brilliant campaigns like Don't Filter Feelings and all the literature and all the noise mm. about mental health over the last couple of years is fantastic. Mm. But I guess if you are, if that quiet man, it's it's mm. just it's just noise. Mm. Mm. How do you make it personal? But I have to say, I, I do feel like the work that Hollyoaks is doing is fundamental to that because we know that 75% of people who end their lives have never reached out to any services. Mm. They're not in touch with any agencies or doctors. They haven't told anybody how they feel. I do feel as if that using that mass media as a vehicle to to just plant some of those seeds, to see people getting the help that they need, to see how people can reach out and what happens if you don't. Well, Brian and Angela, thank you so much for joining us and being so open with your stories and not filtering your feelings. Um, if you want more Don't Filter Feelings, you can search the hashtag or check out Hollyoaks on your social feeds. And if you need any help or advice with anything that you've heard today or seen on Hollyoaks, you can check out Channel com slash support or Angela what would you recommend any other websites places people can go yeah I think the hub of hope is is great you can just download it for free uh, put your postcode in it'll tell you what's around you but also if you're on the phone to a friend who's in Scotland uh, they can put their postcode in and find out what's around them I think Papyrus is amazing as a, a charity they have the hope line that you can ring and just get some advice and support and I think if um, you know if, if, if listening to this has kind of made you wonder if a friend is okay ring them send them a text send them a quick instagram message just checking in